0: Turn back with me to John chapter 3, where Colton read for us earlier in the service. As we come to the conclusion of our series in John, the first three chapters, we'll, we'll look at verses 22 through 30 here this morning, and then next week I will wrap up the series with 31 through 36. As you turn there, let me ask you a question. What's wrong with America we'll start there what's wrong with America be careful how you answer that question (laughs) what's wrong with what's wrong with marriages what's wrong with parent-child relationships Obedience. obedience I've seen people mouth selfishness and other things What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with mankind? Sin. I'm going to tell you this morning, there is a powerful verse. And I'm going to jump to the end of the sermon at the front of the sermon. And I want to put this out there for you. And I want you to have this running through your minds as we go through 22 through 30. But John here gives us a profound statement, a countercultural statement a statement that grinds against everything that we're about in our natural fallen condition. And that's in John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. If we got that verse down, if we really lived that verse out, what would the world look like? What would America look like? What would marriage look like? look like if husband and wife were both saying Christ must increase and I must decrease in this relationship with this woman. And so we're going to look at this section of scripture building up to the pinnacle of it in verse 30, where we are to see that we are to promote Jesus Christ above ourselves to our own expense. And when that happens, everything works out. That is the only solution. That is the only way to get to true your joy. And we all want it, don't we? We all want that. So stay with me, but I want you to be thinking John 3.30 throughout this sermon. Let's pick up in verse 22 and let's just start unpacking what John and uh, John the Apostles inspired to write about John the Baptist and his dialogue with his disciples, his followers. Picking up in verse 22, it says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing near Anon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. We always see through the book of John these parenthetical, these these statements in parentheses, where it's almost like John the Apostle's whispering in our ears some dialogue so that we process this correctly. And here he says, For John has not yet been put in prison. So we see that Jesus has left the scene. We just we just had this encounter where Jesus and Nicodemus are talking about wild stuff. You must be born again. There's this spirit that blows around like the wind, and you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. There's this serpent on a pole. And then we see that God loves the world and he gave us his son. That's how he showed his love for us. And so he leaves Nicodemus and we now get John the Baptist again in the dialogue of the book of John. This will be the last occasion. So we see here that we have two parallel ministries running simultaneously. We've got Jesus and his disciples out in the countryside baptizing. And we've got John and his disciples baptizing as well near these springs in Anon and Salim. But we need to be careful with this. Jesus is not baptizing. You know how I know that? John chapter four, verse two, just look right over, uh, probably on the page that you're open to. Verse two says. That uh, or verse one, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So it's not Jesus that's here baptizing, it's Jesus overseeing the baptisms that his disciples are doing. And I just want to ask you, can you imagine? Here's a quick aside. Can you imagine what somebody would do with a baptism by Jesus? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I've thought through that this week some, and I'm thinking, yeah, there's, there's the guy that would be baptized by Jesus, and he wouldn't go take a bath for 30 years. So he didn't want to wash off Jesus' baptism. And there would be the one that would say, my baptism is superior to your baptism because you were baptized by John, but I, well, I was baptized by Jesus. You know, there's the, hey, have you been baptized? Yeah, yeah, I've been baptized. Well, who baptized you? ah, Jesus, you know, how about you? You know people would do this. You know we would do this. So Jesus is not baptizing, and God was wise to not allow Jesus to do that or not have Jesus do that. You know, there's a strain within the Baptist denomination. There's a small group of Baptists that believe that they can trace their baptisms all the way back to John the Baptist. And they do, they really believe that if you can't be baptized in one of their Baptist churches and you can't trace back to John the Baptist, then your baptism is illegitimate. That is going on today in 2012, and it per, perhaps was an issue even back in the first century. So we don't need to be crazy about baptism and who baptized us. I, I can tell you the man that baptized me, I'm, I'm not like-minded him, with him theologically. And he has some beliefs that just make me cringe today. But I'm not looking to go get re-baptized by a guy that's worthy of it. No, that baptism is between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm baptized in those names, not in the name of a mere man. And so we see here that Jesus not, is not baptizing. He's overseeing baptisms, and that's a good thing. We see this in, in, in 1 Corinthians. Paul um, opens the book of 1 Corinthians by saying this. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. So there's this tendency in all of us to hero worship and there's this tendency for all of us to boast about things that happen in our lives and lo and behold here in scripture it's even going to come up on the issue of baptism so jesus and his disciples are baptizing john and his disciples are also baptizing it says in verse twenty three they were baptizing in anon near Salim because the water was plentiful there quick aside That's a little bitty verse. It's not the only verse that we camp out on, but there's a verse that that we use to believe that baptism needs to be by immersion. There was plenty of water there. You don't need plenty of water to sprinkle. You need plenty of water to immerse. And so John the Baptist continues his ministry while Jesus has his ministry launching as well. And what we see here is the very beginning stages or maybe the middle stages of a changing of the guard. There's a change that's coming about with Christ now baptizing people. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. We read that in Micah. He's the the voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And we see that Jesus is the Deuteronomy 18.18 prophet, one like Moses that will come up from amongst your people. And Jesus is the once and all prophet that will baptize from then and there on. And so we have here a scenario where both Jesus and John are simultaneously ministering to people and baptizing them and they're giving them a baptism of repentance. Let's move on. Verse 25. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Very obscure verse not a lot said about this verse Uh, this issue of purification only comes up one other time in the book of john so what is this discussion about well it's not very very clear i'll give you my take on it as i've studied this baptism up to this point in history was for repentance and it was a picture of being washed and cleansed of sin and these two, these disciples of John and this Jew, they're having a discussion, perhaps a debate, over which one of these baptisms that are now happening simultaneously is true. Is one better than the other? Purification is happening in this. Is Jesus is superior to John's, or is John's even legitimate now? And it will, it will be seen through time that there is a changing of the guard, and that there is one baptism that's becoming legit, and another that's fading away. So baptism at this point is a sign of cleansing from sin, but it's going to expand. When Jesus dies and when he's buried and when he rises again, baptism then will mean, yes, cleansing, yes, cleansing, but more than that, baptism by immersion signifies the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the person who now identifies with Christ in those feats. So there's this discussion, and this discussion spills over, and we look at verse 26, and we see that these disciples of John come to him, and they say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And we're going to watch here, and we're going to see two different responses to Jesus' baptism ministry. These disciples are already showing us their hand. We see these disciples, I dare say, these disciples are statistically driven. They're counting. They're saying, how many are we baptizing and how many is he baptizing? They're looking at Jesus as a competitor, perhaps. That's what it sounds like. That's the tone that I'm getting as I read this. And there's concern because all these people are not coming to us. They're going to Jesus. And you can almost hear in their tone, what are we going to do about this? Look what John says. John answered in 27, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Starting to hear John 3.30 popping up. Here it comes, folks. John knows where his success is, and I use that term success carefully. John knows where his his success comes from in the past. He says this, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. From heaven translates from God. God gave me this ministry, and if he wants, he can take it away. That's John's statement in a nutshell. So John here acknowledges God's divine sovereignty. He did nothing apart from God, the Father, who is in heaven. He says God's prerogative is that he will grow ministries or he will shrink ministries or he will take ministries away. That is not my call. That is not our concern. We are to be faithful with what he has called us to do. God sent John to cry out in the wilderness to make straight the paths and the way of the Lord. And God sent people to John for John to point them to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John knows his role all too well. Do you look at yourself as a John the Baptist type figure in the lives of people that you encounter? We are sent by God to go make disciples of all people in all nations, down the street and over the ocean, we are going to prepare the way of the Lord in the lives of people that we encounter. That's evangelism. That's missions. That is our call. We are to mimic John the Baptist, and we are to go point people to Jesus Christ, the serpent on the pole, the cure to all that ails them. That's our call. John the Baptist knows this, but John the Baptist's disciples... They do not. In fact, I'd say here, the disciples of John the Baptist are not believers yet, because they're not enamored with Jesus Christ. They're threatened by Him. John knows that his success is from God. It has been ordained by God, and he also knows that success going forward is going to look really different. God has told John in one way or another that his ministry is going to decline. And he's going to become so obscure because he's going to be outshone by the light, Jesus Christ, who came into the world. John knows this. And he never once resists it or rails against it or clutches to it in the minorest of degrees. In fact, I'll tell you that John doesn't even know this yet in the, in the narrative, but John the Baptist is going to be imprisoned and he's going to be executed. That's what's waiting On him, the last Old Testament prophet, the one who prepared the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. And John has been humble all along. Look over in John chapter 1 with me and let me just show you over and over again John's humility in his ministry, starting in verse 15 of chapter 1. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he who of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. So John says, Jesus ranks before me. He must increase, I must decrease. Look at verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Look over at verse 26. John answered him, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. Humility just squeezes out of John the Baptist time and time again. Verse 30. This is he of whom I said after he, me, comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He stays on message. And then the last one in verse 35 the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he took, looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And what happens? The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. They left John. Over and over and over, John is denying himself and promoting his Christ. We need to be doing the same thing. It's all about Jesus Christ increasing and us fading into the shadows so that Christ is glorified and Christ is believed and we don't steal any of his thunder or his glory. So now, verse 29 is where we pick back up in John 3. And I want this passage, this section of the the sermon to be something that's used for you that you will know your role, and that you will play it well, because that's what John the Baptist did. He knew his role, and he played that role all the way through to the end. 29 says this, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him greatly rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete." And here's the main point of this passage of Scripture. John takes this discussion that he's having with his disciples and he now illustrates it with a really vivid analogy that seemingly comes out of nowhere, this bride and bridegroom analogy. Or is it out of nowhere? If you look in the Old Testament in Isaiah 62, I think, in Hosea 2 for sure, you will see bride-bridegroom discussions all over the place Israel identifies with this bride and bridegroom discussion throughout its history and we see here that this bridegroom has a friend a best man if you put it in our language today and let's just break down these characters in this analogy that John gives us the first of all the bridegroom of course is Jesus Christ he's the one that comes and pursues his bride Who is the bride? The bride is the church. It's the people that are going out to Jesus to be baptized and to be saved, and they believe in him. And so that's his bride. And we see that the bridegroom is is someone that the best man greatly rejoices over when he hears his voice. This bridegroom, this best man, if you will, is John the Baptist himself. He's telling us, I'm the best man for this wedding. Between the Savior and His precious bride, the role of the best man in first-century weddings. Um, I dare—I don't want to call him the wedding planner. <laughs> I don't want to do that to John the Baptist, but I will call him the wedding administrator. He is the setup man that gets everything set up so that this bridegroom is glorified, and he builds the wedding for the glory of the groom. And the joy is found in pulling off a great wedding for his friend. That's what bridegrooms, or best men's, rather, in first century Judaism were all about. Pulling off a great wedding for their friend, the bridegroom. And when the vows are exchanged in a wedding, even today, and the I do's are done, and the man kisses the woman, the spotlight is totally off the bridegroom. I mean, the best man, forgive me. Right? How ugly a wedding would that be if after all this covenant was entered into we then focus on the best man as they march out the room? Doesn't work. And John the Baptist knows that his ministry is just like a best man at a wedding. He's to do all the administration to prepare the way of the Lord, of the bridegroom. And then when that one comes it's Hey, that was given to me from heaven. I had a role, I played it, I'm out. And it's all about him now. And it's all about them now. And so, we see that John the Baptist uses an analogy of a wedding to describe his role in the whole building up of the kingdom of God. And watch this. John is humble all the way. All the way. Because look what he says at the very end of verse 29. He says this, after rejoicing greatly at this bridegroom, he says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. This joy of mine is now complete. He's talking with his disciples. They're fretting over their ministry, evaporating before their very eyes, and he says, my joy is now complete. Complete. He's not resigned that he's been defeated. He's not resigned that, hey, the good old days are over. No, he's saying the good old days are now upon us. My joy is now fully complete. He's not saying, you know what, we need to go over and negotiate a merger. Maybe we can merge our two ministries and I can be second in command with Jesus and we'll have a good existence from then on out and get to retirement age. No, he's saying, mine is over, and his is now primary and only. And because of this, my joy is now complete. This is raw, unblemished, Christ-centered humility. And then we get to this verse 30, the pinnacle. And he says something that is... This this is a verse that you read and you close the Bible and you ponder on it for the rest of the week. Okay? It's seven simple words. He must increase, but I must decrease. Shut the Bible, walk away, and think on that for the rest of the week. In fact, I want to say to you this morning, I, I am going to require <laughs> I am going to require everyone in this room to memorize John three thirty. Okay, you probably already have it memorized. It's that simple. Will you please, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, memorize this verse and then go live it out. Live it out. And when you don't and you realize you haven't, repent and ask God to enable you to live it out for the next day. John 3.30 is the core of Christianity once we are saved once we have believed and looked upon Jesus Christ and said, I believe that he died in my place and he is my savior and I am new in him, now we're all about John 3.30. He increases, I decrease. That's Christianity. And if we do that until he comes again or he calls us home, he will say, welcome, my good and faithful servant. If we do that... We will not hear from him. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. He must increase. We must decrease. Every one of us must memorize this verse and live it out. So let me apply all this, and then we'll go home. This verse 30 is so against our culture. It's so against our nature. We read this, and if we really embrace it for what it says, there's a part of us that goes, oh, I don't want to do that. It's like stepping out of that darkness into the light. We're comfortable in the dark. We don't want out of that dark because we're secluded, and we're hidden, and we're concealed. And it's painful to step out into that light, and it's painful for us to decrease. This starts at an early age. You ever seen a two-year-old live out this verse? I must decrease... And anyone else should increase. That's not even in our babies, is it? That's not what James and John, the two disciples, did. You know what they did? They went to Jesus and they said, hey, we've got one request. At the end of the day, when you're enthroned in all your glory, will you put one of us on your right side and the other one of us on the left side? You hear the decrease in that? There's no decrease in that language. How about Judas? Did Judas live this verse out? Christ must increase, I must decrease. A couple of pieces of silver is what he sold him up the river for. He didn't live this verse out. How about Peter? Jesus says, you will deny me three times. No way, Jesus. No way won't happen. What happened? Pressure point hits. I don't know him. I'm not one of his guys. No, I don't know what you're talking about. Peter was increasing himself, was he not? He was preserving himself. We are to decrease, and we are to magnify Jesus Christ. Do you know that this is what happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 3? Genesis 3.8, we see that Eve is being tempted by the serpent. And what does does the Scripture say? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. You hear all the increase that she's pursuing? She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. They were increasing themselves. They were wanting to become wise. They wanted good food to eat. And God had already said that will not be good for you. You will die if you do that. So that is the original sin. We are not wanting to increase God. We're wanting to increase ourselves. Give me, give me, give me. And it starts right when we come out of the womb. (laughs) It starts at a very early age. Now look in our culture today. Let's look at athletes for a moment. Do we see athletes in the American sports scene living out, he must increase and I must decrease? Does that define a, sports ath- a pro sports athlete or a college athlete even? I mean, let's start with Muhammad Ali, right? I am the greatest. <laughs> and we could go on and on and on. Well, the rare time that we do see it, we'll see some athletes promoting Christ and denying themselves. Well, they're labeled as a kook. They're stark raving mad. So this is not the norm in our sports culture. How about Politicians? You ever seen a politician decrease himself on the campaign trail? Doesn't happen. How about the business world? You ever seen an executive, an owner of a corporation decreasing himself? I have, but they're rare. Are rare. They're rare. Do you do you, do you see an owner of a pro sports franchise about an hour over there? Do it. I said all week I wasn't going to do that. I shouldn't have done that. This is not our culture. This is so against the grain, us decreasing, us desiring to decrease. That is so against our nature and our culture. i got one last application for you. How about pastors? There's a lot of pastors out there that don't live this verse out, and they increase themselves in the eyes of their congregation or in the eyes of their communities. And we have these massive ministry empires that are built on how great I am, look at what I've done, look at how many I've baptized, look at how many come There's not a a walk in life that is exempt from this challenge. In fact, I will tell you it's even more dangerous in ministry. And it's more closely associated with John the Baptist. Look at all these followers of who? The bridegroom, not the best man. So we have this countercultural call by John here that we need to be people that are denying ourselves, shrinking ourselves, and magnifying this glorious Jesus Christ who saved us from our sins. And how do we do this? We do this by stepping out of the darkness and into the light. Because when we hide in darkness, we're concealing things about us that will make us not look so good to God and to others. But when we step into the light, we say, God called me through His Son Jesus Christ into the light, and it's Him who convicted me, and it's Him who has forgiven me. Give glory to Him and not to me. We let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Not glory to us. Glory to our Father who is in heaven. When we evangelize, we're telling people, don't look at me. I need every bit of forgiveness that's in this Bible. Don't look at me. Look at the one who gives the forgiveness. And you will be right with him. And we live this out by denying ourselves in our marriages and in our work and in our relationships and in our encounters with strangers. When we deny ourselves and we put others first, we are doing so to the glory of Jesus Christ and we have a great example in Scripture we have a great bridegroom that is our groom that has actually lived this out for us and this is my closing point in Philippians 2 starting in verse 5 we see the most ultimate act of decreasing for the glory of God the Father in Jesus Christ decreasing for the glory of His Father. Number one, He didn't count equality with God the Father a thing to be grasped. He increases God the Father. He decreases Himself. Number two, He emptied Himself. We don't like that language for ourselves, do we? We love that language that Christ did it for us, but we don't want to empty ourselves. The call is empty yourself. Image your Christ, your bridegroom, and then he says he humbled himself, and he humbled himself to death. And even then, that death was even humble because it was on a cross. Oh. Jesus Christ lived John 3.30 in his relationship with God the Father. And he actually honored us because he was willing to do this, to decrease himself like this so that we could be saved by God the Father. Do you believe that this morning? Do you see Jesus Christ as a guy that decreased for a season so that we could be made right with God? Does that not inspire you to be one that could decrease yourself in your marriage or at the office or in your circle of friends? But watch this. In Philippians 2, 9, Therefore, because of all of this decrease that Jesus did, therefore God has highly exalted him. And he's bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the increase of Christ is that God highly exalted him and gave him a name that's above all names. And all knees are to bow and all tongues are to confess. He is to increase. We are to decrease. John 3.30 right there. In Philippians 2. So I urge you this morning to take John 3.30 and make it your verse for the rest of your life. Let's take baby steps. Let's make John 3.30 our verse for the next two weeks, right? Jesus Christ during this Christmas season must increase and I must decrease. We've got to put Him first. We've got to promote Him to the kingdom and to the world that doesn't believe in Him yet. And then when we hit January, let's make a new life resolution, not a new year's resolution. Jesus Christ, for the rest of my life, I will seek to increase Him and I will strive hard to decrease me. It starts with memory. You can have this memorized by the time you get home and you can start living it right now, and I urge you to do that. Let's pray. Father, we stop. We pause. We we hit the brakes when we come to John 3.30. We're stunned because this is against everything that we hear, everything that we see in the culture that we live in. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to fend off the cultural barrage of putting self first and of conquering and that You would make us people that delight in decreasing for the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, You gave us the ultimate example of decrease in Your Son in that He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And You show us now that He is worthy of being increased because He conquered death and sin forever and He rose on the third day and He sits at Your right hand. And we know, Father, that there's a day coming when He will return. And I pray that You will use us to make it to where more people bow their knee in joy at His coming and confess with their mouths with joy that He is Lord. And that it wouldn't be done out of fear and trembling, realizing that they've missed it. Father, I pray for this church, Rocky Point Baptist Church, that we would be defined as a people that promote Jesus Christ first and only, and that deny ourselves any glory. And I pray that you'd start with me and the staff and the elders, all the way through all the members of this church, and that people would say Rocky Point Baptist Church puts jesus first and foremost and not man and i ask that you would do this for your glory and that we would be joyful as a result in the name of the son jesus christ amen